The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you. Be okay. Father, we thank you that we can sing, as we have this morning, of great things. We can sing of them robustly with, with full voices and happy hearts. These things are real. They change everything. The tomb is empty. You have risen from the dead, and you've done that for us. You've done that to save a people, to make us yours, to bring us to life. Thank you. And pray now as we turn to your word and consider some of what that means and how it comes to us, what you have done to to make us live. Would you give sight? Would you give insight? Would you help us to understand? And would you draw us? Some of us need to be drawn for the first time. Draw Something to be drawn again in a refreshed way, draw. And some of us need to be just drawn again in, into your arms. We're always close, but, but again this morning, draw us near. Do your work. Spirit, move here, build your church, and bring honor to the risen King. Thank you. In his name we pray. Amen. In several ways, Easter is about new life. New life for Jesus, obviously, raised from the dead. That's the historical event we're celebrating today. It's a fact of history. But then, of course, new life for Jesus makes it possible for new life in other people. Makes it possible for others to live, to know eternal life, which is something that, that starts now. It stretches on into, we often think of it as about heaven, about life in heaven with God, and it is that, but it's also beginning now about a different, a new, a, a changed life here on earth. It's about that too. Life. Easter is about life for Christ and for us. But how do you get that life? We turn our attention this morning to the middle of Luke chapter 18 where we read of a leading public figure who started a conversation with Jesus by asking him just that very question. How do you get life? It's it's a great question at any time of the year because it's about the most important issue in all of life. How do you live? We should always be considering that and thinking about it, but it's particularly fitting here on Easter morning. It's a question that fits here, and as Jesus answers it for us this morning, as we kind of follow the conversation, see Jesus answer it, and then watch him interact with his disciples as they kind of go back and forth on what Jesus said. I think what we find here is something that's going to be challenging for us, perhaps, and encouraging for us as we see, not really in the end, what do I have to do for life, but what have you done, Lord, to give life? Something challenging and something encouraging, I think. So let me read verses 18 through 30 and then draw two observations from it. It begins, And a ruler asked him, 
Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or, or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Luke chapter 18. Two observations. Here's the first. One thing is necessary in a person to receive eternal life. One thing is necessary in a person to receive eternal life. This man who comes to Jesus is a ruler of something, doesn't say what, but he has some power, and obviously he's religious, and as we find out, he's extremely wealthy. And he comes to Jesus with a question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds first by confronting the kissing up that opens that question. He's not denying that he's good. He's not denying that he's God, but he's just, he's poking at this guy. He's, he's going to try to expose this man's heart. He knows what's going on. He's, gonna, he's trying to get at the heart. And the first thing is the kissing up. You call me good because you're trying to impress me. We know that God is good. He's the one you need to be considering. He's the one you have to impress. Please him. Now, your question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? To live now with God as if he's, he's the one that I'm, I'm in relationship with now in this life and something's different there and then when I die at the end at the judgment welcomed into his presence and accepted into heaven what do I have to do for that a critical question it's the most important question for all the world to be concerned about but notice how it's set up he asks it in a way that I think most people today would ask it, most people think about this whole question of pleasing God very much like he does. They think about it and start with the notion that God gives us commands and then we do them. And if we do them well enough, properly, frequently enough, with enough vigor. I mean, not perfectly, nobody's perfect, but, but if you do it 
well enough, and if you pursue it, you know, honestly, you, you really try, then as God gives grades at the end, he'll give you a passing mark. You'll be okay. You'll be right in his eyes, or to use a religious word, you'll be righteous in his eyes. You'll be okay before him. Based on what and how we did. In his sight, I'll be okay and I'll be rewarded there, not just now with, with life with him, but there with eternal life in, in heaven forever with him. That's the general mindset in the world. That's this guy's mindset. So, okay, to get that, what do I have to do? And at first, Jesus plays along. You know the commandments. And he lists off five of the Ten Commandments. All, note this, chosen from the second half, the, what's called the second table of the law, because those fit really well with this guy's approach. Yes, he's thinking, since my youth, I have not been sexually immoral, check. Not killed anyone, check. I've not stolen, not given false witness, I've honored my father and mother, check, check, check. That's what he says to himself in verse 21, so far, so good, so it seems. But it also seems that the ruler himself knows that something is missing. Matthew's telling of this account says that he actually asks Jesus, what else am I missing? But if you think about it, the very existence of this event, this guy came to start this conversation, the very existence of this event reveals that he knows something more. And Jesus also knows something more. He looks at all this, this, this man says, I've tried hard, I know those laws, I've tried hard to keep them, I've been pretty good at it, but something's not right. So he and Jesus are both aware that there's, there's something lacking in the middle and they're both moving towards, Jesus knows what it is and he doesn't, but they're kind of both moving towards something. I know these commandments, I've tried hard to keep them my whole life. That's what he can say, that's what the best of us can say, and that's what the world all around us always says. Every other religion other than biblical Christian faith works just like this. Here's what God says, the gods say, the higher powers, the forces, whatever. They lay out in front of us how we are supposed to act, and then we do it and are graded. All the world thinks like that. Every other religion except biblical Christian faith. But I wonder. I mean, I've, I hear that. I'm doing that. But I don't think it's there. Do you connect with that a little bit? I mean, I, I hear the commandments. I, I mean, there's, there's a lot of commandments in the Bible, and I'm, and I'm doing them, and I, I think he tells me what to do, and I do it. But life with God? Connection with, relationship with God? A life of, this man's Jewish, you might have thought of this, of this biblical word, the life of shalom, a life of, what that means is wholeness, of, of completeness, of, of a life that is 
right and good and at peace, a life characterized by holiness and love, I, I'm not sure. Are you there? You have to engage with this personally. This is not a story about somebody else. This is actually about you. Are you missing connection with God? Personally, intimately. I'm not saying, do you not know things about God? I'm talking about, are you missing connection with God? Some people go to church their whole lives and miss connection with God. It feels like, here's me, here's him, and it's not actually joined. Do you enjoy peace with God? By which I mean a forgiveness of all the wrongs that you have done and you know you have. We can talk about sin, we can talk about evil, we can talk about just wrongdoing, and it's not something out there. It lives right in here in the heart of each one of us. At night, by yourself, you know it about you. All the angers that live in here, all the lusts that live in here, maybe they don't come out in actions, maybe they do in secret. Maybe they don't come out in your words, but they're in there and they're rolling around in there, and you're not who you present as. You're darker than that. Something's broken inside of here. Do you know that's true and at the same time I know a connection with God that's characterized by just, as in justice, by just mercy. Not a denial of it, it's sweeping under the rug. I'm actually pretty good. No, no, you know who you are. It's not swept under the rug. It's, it's faced and it's justly dealt with such that God's mercy covers it and you know forgiveness, peace with God. Do you know union with him, this, this life of rest and joy that is, that is like sitting next to somebody who is a friend of yours and looking at life with him, united? Do you know growth, do you know change that moves towards holiness, that moves towards righteousness, that makes you more like him and then better towards other people out of the overflow of your heart, that your heart actually changes. You're not actually suppressing your heart to do something. Your heart is different and you are a different person as you're united with God. Do you know union with God, change and growth? We spend a whole lot of time working at being good and working at putting on appearances and inside we know what we are and we know there's a miss. Is that you at all? Do you relate to that? Do you want life of connection with God, of peace with God, of forgiveness with God, of growth towards God, of, of wholeness with people? Do you want eternal life? What do you have to do to get it? If you ask Jesus, he will tell you the truth. There is something necessary in us if you want to have that kind of life, if you want to have this connection with God, to be joined with him and to walk with him. And here's the statement that's going to expose the critical need. 
And you've got to watch this. You've got to follow this carefully. Because you're going to say something that's actually a statement meant to expose the thing needed. The thing he says is not the thing needed. It's exposing. One thing you still lack, he says. Let me show you. Watch. Sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Trade your treasures. Everything that you have here, trade that for treasure in heaven. Sell it all, love your neighbor with it instead of yourself, and now freed from the love of money, come follow me. You won't have anything else here except me, but you'll have me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. That's what you asked, right? That's what you should do. Look closely at that because what Jesus said is not actually what he's getting at. He just yanked the covers back to expose. To expose this man's heart and maybe ours. To show him what's lacking. Because the ruler should have said, that's it? That's what I do? I asked you. That's what I... Great. Eternal life. Here I come as he went and listed everything to sell. That's what he should have said. But he said, no thank you. Why? This is what Jesus is exposing in him and in all of humanity. He said, no thank you, because he lacks a heart that wants treasure in heaven, that wants heaven, that wants God, that wants union with God. He lacks a heart that wants that above everything else at any price. Even if it cost me my wealth, it cost me my status, my security, my comfort, and my safety. A heart that wants to follow Jesus at any price, including the price of our safe, middle-class American lifestyles. Whatever it is that you value, whatever it is that you treasure, lean into, or are most proud of, if it costs you that, he doesn't have a heart for it. He doesn't want it that much. All of that laid out there on the table and given up in exchange for communion, daily walking with Jesus, and eternal life in heaven full of treasure. No thanks. And when he heard these things, it says he went away very sad. He went away, we could say, translate those words as deeply grieved which is really interesting. He's not angry. He's not indifferent. He's deeply grieved. If you're walking down the street and you happen to glance over at a window in a store and you see something that looks kind of cool and you walk over and you say, oh, whoa, that is pricey. You're not deeply grieved by that. Probably indifferent. Maybe you talk about it a little bit, but, but grief isn't. What, what, it only grieve you if you said, that I need. 
That's everything. I, I, if I don't have that, I don't, I don't have anything. And he walked over and said, whoa, that's pricey. I can't get it. I need this and can't get it. That's what would produce sorrow as you walk away and you realize what I need, I'm never going to have. This guy knows that he needs eternal life. He knows who God is. He knows that there isn't anything here ultimately that ultimately fills him. He's, he's, he's lived there. There's some, it's not here. It's not here. And he's looking ahead. He knows he's going to die and face the judgment. He needs this. But something in him says, not at that price. Nope. Maybe in a way that he doesn't even understand. His heart does not go there. His heart's not in it. His heart actually wants the world more than it wants God, more than it wants Jesus, more than it wants eternal life. He asked that question and he just realized, Jesus just yanked back the covers and showed him, your heart actually doesn't want me. Your heart wants the world. What must I do to receive eternal life? Give up this life. Nope. What I mean to ask is, how do I get eternal life with everything else? Jesus said, you can't. And he walked away grieved. Sometimes we hear a tough challenge and we say, let me think about it. And what we mean is, no. That's what he's saying. No. If God is God, God should be first. God should be supreme. God should be worshipped in every way. God should be honored. God should be obeyed. Of course he should have prime place in my heart. But he doesn't, and that's not going to change. No. And he walked away. It's a grievous thing to see the hardness of the human heart who doesn't want life with God that much. One thing is needed, a heart that values God above all things, and he doesn't have it. Nobody does naturally, and we can't make it. Which is what leads to the second point. You get a pause here, though, before you come to the second point, and if you're going to actually benefit from this, you've you got to see, like, right there at that line is a sense of sorrowful hopelessness. The, the next bit won't make any difference to you if, if there's no sorrowful hopelessness there. What we need, we don't have, and we can't make. A heart that actually wants him above all things. The second observation then, God alone can give the new heart that we need to be saved into a new life. God alone can give the new heart that we need to be saved into a new life. 
This ruler is not the only one grieved. Jesus is too. Verse 24, Jesus, it says, looked at him with sadness. And actually, it's the very same two words used to describe Jesus that were used to describe this man. This man turns away and walks away deeply grieved, and Jesus watches him walk away deeply grieved. What you see in that that little exchange there is you see the heart of Jesus for the lost world, for people. We sometimes think of of Jesus as, as a king, and he is certainly a king, and we think of him as a king who is seated on high and lays out in front of us his, his requirements and when, and when we don't keep them, when we don't follow them, when we don't obey him, then he's ready to bust us. This is a, a God who actually has come down to earth as a man to lay out in front of us hope, to provide what we need and he lays it out in front of us and then he watches people say, no, I love the world instead. And it breaks his heart. People say no. He's grieved by the losses of the world in general and by that particular guy, by you even. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, he says. Impossible, really. Verse 25 is a statement about impossibility. Clear from the word picture of a camel through the eye of a needle. Clear also from the disciples' shocked response to that. Some people try to make that statement be just something that's like really hard. He's saying it actually can't happen. Camels don't go through eyes and needles. And that's what the disciples heard. They're really surprised because they thought the opposite of what Jesus said is true, that, that wealth indicated this is the kind of guy that God would like. This is the kind of guy who does it right. And Jesus says no. Wealth can be a blessing from God for sure. But Jesus is focused on the great danger that wealth is for our hearts. It's a huge snare for us. Other things in life do this too, but wealth is particularly good at this. It easily blinds a person. It blinds us from seeing ourselves as weak and vulnerable and poor. It blinds us from seeing the world as empty and not being able to deliver what actually satisfies us. It easily blinds us to thinking, the world has it all, and I'm really good at getting it. Things are going okay for me. Because in our wealth, we feel strong, we feel powerful, and we do a good job of gathering together things that satisfy us. It easily blinds us. And also then on the flip side, keeps us from seeing God as our only hope, is seeing God as the one we must trust and treasure. We're bent like that, we're spiritually blind. And so then you can ask, who then can be saved And the answer is, no one. With man it is impossible, he says. But with God it's possible. With God it's possible. That sentence there is why the Bible says often things like salvation is of the Lord or the gospel is the power of God unto salvation or we should only boast in the Lord because it's God who does it. God gives the thing that's needed. God works inside of us to give us a new heart and that's after he worked outside of us to make salvation even possible in the first place. How did he do that? 
Well, first, what do, you, what do you do outside of us? And actually, that's what we're celebrating this very weekend, Good Friday and Easter. If we were to look ahead in this passage, for me, I have to turn the page in my Bible. If I turn the page, we find the passage that I preached last week where Jesus explicitly tells them what's about to happen, describes Good Friday and Easter. How he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles, mocked, beaten, and nailed to the cross, hung up under the curse of God, die, and then be raised again from the dead on the third day. That's Easter morning predicted yet again. That's what God did to make it possible for us to be saved. The actual event of Good Friday and the actual event of Easter morning, these things actually happened. They are the bedrocks of the Christian faith. History. Not a theory or a philosophy or wise teaching or some sort of bit of theology. There's certainly a lot of that in Christianity, but it all flows from the events, from the history. This moment when a dead man who claimed to be God and predicted that he would be killed and predicted that he would rise again at a certain moment and told them exactly when and told them to write on their calendars because it was going to happen. And then it happened. No one's ever been able to refute that. Deny it? For sure, people deny it. Say, no, it didn't. That's different than refuting. Refutation involves evidence and argument. Denial just says, nah. -uh. Plenty of denial, no refutation. Where's the evidence? And on the contrary, the evidence that it actually happened is plentiful and strong. Roman executioners, whose job it was to get people killed, killed him, verified he was dead. And then his followers, heartbroken and crushed because dead people are dead. And all the hope that we had in this person with him is also dead. His followers then took him down, held his limp dead body in their hands, prepared it for burial, and then put it in a tomb, rolled a stone in front of it, saw where all that happened, and then saw him alive again with their own two eyes, touched him with their own hands, talked with him, hugged him, ate with him for weeks, and then watched him ascend back into heaven on a cloud with angels. That's the testimony of hundreds of people. And their lives then changed after that. People's lives do change in all kinds of dramatic ways for theories. But people's lives don't change in dramatic ways for known, seen lies. They affirm, I know this, I saw it, I touched it. Kill me if you want, Herod, Pilate. You realize they, they argued this in the presence of the people who just killed Jesus. Kill me if you want. That guy just rose out of the grave. I will too. That's strong evidence. Hundreds of people's lives dramatically changed by something that they say they saw with their own eyes. This bears careful consideration. If you're not a Christian this morning, 
Obviously, all, all of this is, is, is one gigantic offer to you that, that God's laying in front of you. Here's what you need, and here's how I provide that for you. It's obviously an offer laid in front of you. And I just ask you, give this careful consideration. We are not, the Christian faith is not standing on a stage amongst a line of people with their offered theories. We're standing in a really different place saying, we've got theories, that's great. We also have a fact of history. No one else does. Please give that careful consideration. Don't just think about the theories. Examine the history. If it didn't happen, like was already mentioned this morning, this stuff is all bunk. If it did happen, everything else is. And this is the truth. God provided the thing you need. He sent Jesus to go to the cross, not just to show you how much he loves you, but because he actually had to find a way to make just mercy for you. He doesn't sweep stuff under the rug. He holds it up. He knows who you are better than you do, in fact. He knows everything that's in your mind and heart. He knows what you've done in secret. And he holds it up in front of him and says, I need to find a way to deal with that. I'll put that on my son hung on the cross to pay for your sin. That's why Christ came. That's why Christ was sent by the God who wanted to save. He came and went to the cross to pay for sin and rose again from the dead three days later to show that worked. Death doesn't hold me. Death doesn't hold anybody who's trusting in me. He provided the payment that we needed for our sins and he provided the path, the open door into life that we need It's only in Christ. This bears careful consideration. If you're not a Christian, please look at it. Please consider it. He gives what is necessary. On the outside first, providing salvation to make it possible. And then on the inside, he gives what's necessary, a heart that sees that and says, yes. Please and thank you. point of the next passage, which I preached last week, is to make clear this point. God opens blind eyes. That's the purpose behind all the healing of all the blind people that Jesus, he's not just trying to do something, he is, but not just trying to do something that's nice and gracious. He's trying to show people are blind, I open eyes. People have hearts that don't want me. I change hearts. He opens eyes. He gives hearts to people that that show us all the emptiness of the world and our need for him, or in this context, to show us the emptiness of wealth and how poor of a substitute it is for actually giving real life. He gives that. God can and does do the impossible. He changes hearts and shows himself to us. This is a supernatural thing. He shows himself to us in a way that we now suddenly see. It is right to come to him and say, Lord, help. Lord, I I need eternal life. What, What do I need? What do I need to do? And for him to actually respond, actually, it's what I need to do. 
please then, do it. Because if you don't, I'm going to walk away. Please. Right there, if I, were to, if I were to write this out as a formula, right there I'd have to say, then a miracle happens. And God causes light to shine into darkness. Let there be light, and you see. Do you see a little bit, even right now? I, I imagine in this room there are some people who are saying, like, when is this going to be over? And there are some people who are saying, like, I think maybe he's talking about me. That might be, that might be, I, I don't know, that might be the dimmer switch, just kind of. If you see, respond. Lord, more. Show me. Open my eyes. Change my heart. Give me this. I, I see the need of it, and I'm going to walk away grieved. But I don't want to. I don't want help. Maybe you see it right now. Respond. Cry out to God for mercy and believe the promises and run to him, laying aside everything else. You are the only hope, Lord, but you are our full and sufficient hope. And he will receive you. That's the purpose of God in sending Christ is to save people. People stand condemned already. He sent Christ to save To give eternal life. And that starts even now. Verse 28, Peter responds, We have, Lord, done what you've talked about. We've given up everything, we've, we've lost it all. He's one of the disciples. Jesus says in a way that's fitting for them before the cross, Jesus has opened their eyes and they've seen and they, they have actually surrendered to him, they've followed him. They don't know everything yet, but they know some and they're following. And he says, we've given up. I mean, we're, we've left everything. And the question seems to be, so have we lost everything? We, we have lost, he mentions, homes. And Jesus responds in a way that wants to make something really clear. And I think this is, if you're, if you're thinking about becoming a Christian or if you already are a Christian and, and you kind of look ahead and you say, so what kind of a life does that make for me now? This is an awesome statement by Jesus. This statement in particular, there are a lot of statements like it, but this one in particular for me early in my Christian life was, was extremely helpful because of something that I'll, I'll point out here, how he delineates life now and life to come. But this is a, a, a sweet help to this theory that we have sometimes like, okay, so I, I trust Jesus and I follow him, and what that means is, is life is going to be uh, one long, tough road to hoe and then comes heaven, but life right now is, hmm. And Jesus says, well, yeah, but, 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 but. 
Peter, you think you've lost everything. Well, truly I say to you, let me underline this so that you really hear that, truly, when Jesus says that, is like, take this to the bank, there is no one who has left house or he lists various other things of life, wife, brothers, parents, children, you could add in, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this life. This was the sweet thing for me, in this life. Of course, he does not mean that literally. You don't get back multiple houses, multiple parents. He means that figuratively. What you get back in this life is everything that was good and sweet and appropriately filling in those things. When you follow me, you get me with all of that. Often in the body of Christ, but not only. Sometimes it's in directly communing with him. You, you get what was rewarding about having siblings. You get it from me. You get what would have been rewarding about, about a life of, in, a, in a safe and secure home. You get that with me. However it is that it's fulfilled, what he's saying is that there is a cost. Every single one of us who follows Jesus will pay a cost. There's something given up, something lost, something that's, that's laid on the table and set aside. And what I tell you, says Jesus, I tell you this, take it to the bank. I put back on the table everything with me. You never end up ripped off in the Christian life. You never end up shortchanged. You never end up in deficit. Christ and with him all things. That's the new and the better life now. And on top of that, eternal life in the age to come. Complete with all the treasure that is in heaven. This is an over-the-top good promise. You're never going to end up ripped off. Ripped off. Christian, that's what this is all about. What God sent his son to do for you is not just to settle some sort of legal account, but is actually to bring you to real life now and for forever. This is hard to believe sometimes in the midst of loss and hardship, which is why in the beginning I prayed, Lord, some of us need to be, be brought back, drawn back to you in, in some renewed, refreshing way. Christian, sometime after today, like, let me ask you just, like, like, think back to the beginning of the worship service today. There was something in the singing in the worship service today that was a little bit, little bit more like, just a little bit something. That's going to go away by Tuesday. kind of fell off when we started talking about membership. <laughs> then it came back. Then it fell off and I started to preach. <laughs> It'll come back when we sing the closing song. And it's all going to go away by Tuesday. Easter can't be a sugar pill. The songs of Easter, the, the sayings of Easter can't be a sugar pill. We, we've got to, may God do this. 
May God draw us all back. And I'm talking to the Christians here now. May God draw us all back in, into the spot of saying, like, do you realize it wasn't called Easter when I did it? But I did it. And I didn't do it to give you this, this once a year, like, great feeling. I did it to give you life. To give you when you say goodbye to everything you had, to give it back to you in a different way, but fuller and deeper and wider, to give you real life now, communion with me, so that this wouldn't be any, the case anymore, that this would happen. You'd be joined to me, and you'd know peace with me. You'd know forgiveness of your sins, and you'd know you could come to me a wreck and find a smile on my face and find help to grow and find a people with which you could commune right now and in the age to come. And in the age to come, life full of treasure and blessing for forever and ever and ever and ever. That's why for you. That's why. And we can celebrate that every day if, if God would draw us back and if we would remember. This isn't actually an Easter passage per se, Right? That's not for a couple more pages. But it's about what Easter's about. How do I inherit eternal life? Not by your own works that you would boast in you. You can't. What did he do that I might inherit eternal life? He sent Christ to the cross and then raised him from the dead and then opened your heart and your eyes to see it. The work God requires is this, to believe in the one that he has sent to die and rise and secure all that for you and to secure you for it. That's how God gives you life now and forever. The God of grace saves Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us to remember and to rest. And some here, Lord, who don't know you, would you give them eyes to see and hearts that want you above everything else, want you. This is your work. We look to you to do it. Thankful that you have and thankful that you will. In your name we pray, Lord. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.